Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. I mean, I feel like that's just the nature of songs is like, uh the more you play them the more you you understand and uh your feelings about them evolve and you change as a player because just playing a lot changes how you play music and how you approach it so it's just natural for things to continue to change and shift welcome to heavy hops my name is alexi my name's sam joining us this week is trevor shelley debra guitarist of chicago-based heavy instrumental bands pelican relayer and chord we discuss what's happening with each of these bands, including re-releases of Pelican's first three albums, the fourth chord album, Imperfect Authentic Cadence, and the upcoming Relayer album, which was being recorded at the time of this conversation. We discuss sources of inspiration, use of file sharing and songwriting, and the experience of allowing fans insight into the creative process through new technologies such as TikTok. Trevor also works as a publicist, and tells us about the changing landscape of public relations and communicating with journalists. In the episode notes, you'll find a Spotify playlist containing Trevor's work. Let's dive and get heavy. Trevor, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're really happy to have you today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I have to apologize. I not only haven't done an interview in well over a year, I just haven't been speaking to other human beings. So any social awkwardness, you know, that's just par for the course. But I, we've all been through this pandemic together, so I'm sure everyone under get, uh, understands. Everybody gets it. No, you're all good. Um, so we were we were talking a little bit, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago about uh, Hydrahead and some of the sort of like. Uh, label infrastructure and world and you've got a lot of cool things that are sort of coming up in your uh in your spheres one of which is the uh new or not the new the re-release of uh some pelican material of which uh is coming out now on thrill jockey that had previously uh been released on hydra head and so i was we're curious about um how that kind of came about um, and, uh, why it's important for that stuff to see the light of day now. Uh, yeah, it's a matter of, uh, Aaron has decided to discontinue. I, I, he hasn't talked about it publicly, so I don't really know exactly how much I'm supposed to talk about or whatever, but he made the decision to discontinue keeping the Hydrahead records in print, uh, both physically and digitally. Uh, I think it just like, the business side of running a label doesn't really jive with his personality and his efforts to find people to run the label for him over the years have not been as successful as he wished, I think. So uh, he let everybody just sort of take their records and do whatever they wanted with them. Um, and Thrill Jockey is a label that, you know, he, being from Chicago, we've always held in incredibly high esteem and uh, have always really been interested in working with them and I just reached out and, and Bettina was interested. So uh, yeah, those those records, the digital are going to flip over to Thrill Jockey sometime this month, I think, and uh, maybe in, by the time this episode airs. And are those uh, albums going to get repressed uh, also? Yeah, so what we've been doing lately is uh, kind of going through our archives and trying to figure out what stuff didn't get released and what stuff is still around. Um, there's sort of like alternate recordings and alternate versions and demos and stuff that we never did anything with. And so we're kind of interested in maybe like doing, because this is our, technically this year is our 20th anniversary. We're kind of interested in like kind of doing some of that archival stuff that we neglected for years and years and years and like actually kind of bring some of that stuff to the front and maybe do versions of these records that that contain bonus material and some interesting tidbits for fans do you personally love it when bands do that archival work for <laughs> re-releases or anniversaries because uh, there's a lot of different feelings that musicians have about uh, when they see other artists doing doing it or doing it themselves uh, some 
I guess like, like a counter perspective would be that I'm only interested in what's happening now uh, versus what's happened, say, 20 years ago. How do you feel about that dynamic or um, when you see other bands do it and then for yourself? I mean, for bands that I love, I like totally geek out on that stuff. Like uh, when The Cure did those Rhino reissues and they turned them all into double discs and the second disc was all like home demos by Robert Smith. Then the Disintegration one is a three CD with a live album. Yeah, I mean, that stuff, like I live for that stuff. I'm a total collector nerd. But I mean, the flip to that is like, when I'm checking out a band that I've never heard before and maybe they're like 30 years old and then the version that's on streaming is some reissue that has 40 bonus cuts, that, that that's also kind of um, intimidating. And like, I feel like there has to be a way to strike a balance between what is the core album and what is sort of the bonus material. And maybe that's something that we have to figure out and navigate uh, with this reissue campaign because I don't, I do want people to, when they go to our albums, um, if they haven't heard them before, experience them as they were intended, which is like the core album. You know what I mean? Um, Cause there is something about like, you're listening to, to the album and then like a seven inch version <laughs> comes on and you don't even realize that you've gotten into bonus tracks and you're like, haven't, haven't I heard this song already? So yeah. Yeah, I, I've always appreciated the the little bonus tidbits, um, but it can be a little daunting for like a new fan who's just trying to get like the, the original release of something. And kind of on that note, uh, Chord is releasing their fourth album uh, coming out in June. Can we expect a four chord or can we expect a 5-1 uh, uh, perfect cadence uh, on this record? Uh, the album, and you're going to have to forgive me because I am not the music theory person in that group, but the album is called Imperf Imperfect Authentic Cadence, and it is, it's a three, it's a, basically it's a, an album with three pieces on it, and they follow a chord progression. <laughs> Pardon me, I just, I'm not good at any of this stuff. But it is like supposed, almost an authentic cadence whatever that is, but we did something with it that's different. And there's liner notes on the record that explain it a lot better than I possibly could because I just don't, I, I just show up and play guitar. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I thought it was funny. So I listened to the F minor and so already there, I was like, oh, this is going to be like, it, it probably will not be as satisfying as what someone's looking for when they're like thinking of an authentic cadence. But I just thought it was a really, really interesting um, concept for the album mm -hmm. um so when you're constructing these songs what is what is kind of the process that goes into uh creating it's it's a concept album for sure so what what is the process uh you all take um i mean it's all a little bit different but um chord is semi-improvisational but we follow charts so what we typically do is we one of us comes up with an idea for a piece and then we try to pick a chord that will make sense with sort of the arrangement that, that somebody has come up with. And then we build out from there. So for instance, um, the core piece on that album, which I'm not gonna try and say the name of it because I will, I will butcher it. It's like, a, but it's a 30 minute piece and it starts with uh, a low throb bass on the, on the core, the root note or whatever. And then there's like a, a drone above it and then Kyle and I are both doing arpeggios of single note arpeggios. So the whole chord is built there basically. But then Kyle and I begin to shift notes as we go deeper into the piece. And eventually the entire piece shifts to a different chord, like gradually piece by piece, which is the first time we've attempted that. Pretty much all of our pieces, we tend to, tend to be one chord and each person plays a note from the chord and what they do with that note is sort of at the beginning it was entirely improv uh, yeah, <laughs> again I, I don't know how to talk anymore uh in the in the old days it was entirely improvised and then we started started coming up with ways to arrange them more carefully as the person that may not be as theory inclined <laughs> what kind of learning curve was there, is there, uh, when you're working with this type of project? Uh, well, when they start talking theory stuff, I follow it for about the first few minutes and then I tune out. 
I feel like what I'm able to bring to it is because I, I've played in a lot of bands and I kind of understand dynamics and arrangements is that I can help push the arrangement in a way where you can feel a trajectory to the piece. So even if I don't know what the hell we're doing, like I, I am able to interject in, in a positive way, I think. And when you're taking some of this stuff live, uh, when, when I see Pelican or when I see Relayer, you have a lot of energy when you play live. You're not the guy that stands on the X that's like gaffa tape to the ground. You're <laughs> having a good time. So when you're performing this, which uh, has no percussion and is decidedly different um, from those other bands, what is it like uh, for you uh, from a performance standpoint? I enjoy it. Uh, it's just the chord music is so much, it's a very different vibe. Um, in every way, because I feel like the goal of it is totally different than the goal of a Pelican performance. There is the, I think what they have in common is that there is like um, an emphasis on extreme volume, maybe not extreme, but high volume uh, to the point where the music can become subsuming. But I think in chord, it's a much more meditative vibe that we're going for than something that's like body moving. Um, so I enjoyed being able to just sit down on a chair on stage and <laughs> do my thing and just like let the, the music kind of wash over me. Um, and it's so much more unexpected because we don't really rehearse. It's sort of like when we sit down to perform, we have our charts and we're following our charts but we don't know exactly what the piece is going to sound like. And it's all very reactive off of one another and what each of us is bringing to the piece. And we don't, you know, we don't know what to expect when we're sitting down. So that's, that's part, part of the joy of just sitting there and uh, living inside the sound a little bit. Is there a unique sort of performance aspect to this as far as the venues go or the places that, uh, that you perform this music in, or are you seeking, uh, whether it's like anywhere you can play or a venue, uh, a venue setup. Do you do uh, sort of non-traditional performances with this? Not as many as I perhaps would have liked to over the years, but we haven't really done too many shows altogether. Um, and most of them in Chicago have been at like places like Empty Bottle and like um, Hideout. So, and um, no. Yeah, double door. We've done some loft spaces and stuff like that. And that I find that to be maybe more suited to that sort of environment. Like that environment is more suited to that sound in a way, uh, a non-traditional venue, but it just hasn't, that just hasn't happened for us in that way yet. The other thing is, is that Cord hasn't played a show in so many years now that, <laughs> I mean, uh, I I don't know. Yeah, I I haven't even thought about what a chord show would look like in a while when when you take chord you're it's it's a different style of music from relayer and uh pelican what is kind of your uh setup uh from a musician standpoint do you walk on with a guitar or is it a different kind of uh show that people can expect um so our usual lineup is bass three guitars and a gentleman who's playing like processed synth laptop type stuff. Um, but yeah, for me, it's my setup is relatively similar to what I do in Pelican. It's just guitar, amplifier, pedals. For the recordings, yeah. uh, are you coming in with all the compositions complete and all the ideas sort of fleshed out? Or is there a chance to actually like use the studio as a space to finish ideas and use it for what a studio is. Um, yeah, so I think with this album and the one previous, the, uh, G Major 7, we had already performed the pieces live before we went into the studio. So it was kind of like we would do a test run of a composition idea, or we would do a, like, you know, we would book a show and we'd come up with a composition before we performed. Um, and then after performing, it would be like, oh, that turned out kind of good. Maybe we should record that and go to the studio and do something with it. Um, but there have been other 
especially the the second album we did progression that was um a three similar to the new album it was like three uh compositions um and we picked a different chord for each of them and then uh we recorded the album twice so we used the same charts and the same uh con concept for the pieces but we changed which chords they were so the cd and the lp are essentially totally different albums even though they're the same pieces of music they're just different chords and different performances and that was an album that we recorded in one mammoth session at uh, electrical audio and i think it took 18 hours to record all six pieces all told because it's like i don't know it's like it's a double LP. It must be like, yeah, two hours worth of music or something that we ended up recording that day. Now I'm kind of curious about this with the reception to that, uh, to that album progression and the two, uh, releases, so to speak of it, or the, um, those two different readings and performances of the material. Did the critics pick up on that? And how did you kind of present that to people that were listening to it critically? Um, yeah, that, came up as a talking point in reviews because I think when we serviced the album to writers, we mentioned that in the, in the, um, like in the press release or whatever. Um, but I don't, I don't get the impression that anyone like cared. <laughs> it was more like we, we did it as our own personal flex and <laughs> whether anyone gave a shit, I don't know. But uh, but there are two versions of the same album that I can I can say that we did that. <laughs> all all kinds of firsts. Yeah. <laughs> On a personal level, I find it really interesting and satisfying, and it's interesting to hear how like the the different performances of the same compositions. How um, you know there's in at least in my opinion, like some of them turned out better than others, and it's like interesting to hear how different they sound, even though it's kind of the same thing. That that brings me to kind of an, another question here. And that is like, when you're looking at, uh, when you're going into record, are you thinking about like how you're going to perform these songs? Because uh, when I think of uh, a band like Chord, I imagine that you could actually use the studio for a different purpose than just sort of like, recording songs that you know you want to play them as as they as you've rehearsed them mm -hmm. uh live so there may be like a different opportunity to use uh the studio time obviously time is money too and cord probably doesn't have like ten thousand dollar budgets to uh to record that, that's um, why we did two albums in one day <laughs> yeah so you have it smart by doing uh by recording everything live right so yeah the money doesn't matter as much i mean uh, but is that something you kind of think about uh, when you're approaching material in the sense of like, what are we going to play this live in this way? And does that impact or inform the writing? I Not really with Chord, just because I think that band is sort of based around the concept of writing a new piece pretty much every time we perform. And we perform so rarely that there isn't really like... I can't think of a single instance where we've gone back to a piece later you know what I mean actually and that's sort of the deviation from that is the making of the, the albums that that's kind of like going back to the to the same well dipping in the well twice for the same thing and it's at that point it's sort of like we've performed it we've recorded it it's time to move on may that be the case for another project like uh, like Relayer, which I know that you are, uh, you're recording a new album for Relayer as of, uh, as of this time, is the purpose of playing live uh, and recording with that mentality a part of what you're doing now with the new Relayer material? Um, yeah, I mean, Relayer is, and actually Pelican too, to an extent. I don't, and I'm not sure if this is exactly your question, but we make a point of like playing the songs live as much as we can before we go into the studio, just because I think it's easier to make, um, it's easier to understand songs once you've lived in them a little bit. And like, I think the point of those bands songs are to be performed live in front of people. And the record is almost like a, 
it's an important document. It's like, a, it's important, especially for us, I think, to make a documentation of that moment in our lives or this that period of time that those song, songs were being constructed. Um, but ultimately they are intended to be some sort of manifestation of what we find, uh, what we get out of them performing them live in front of people. So having that experience and, and getting a chance to really understand how the songs interact with people and how people interact with them. I think that helps us figure out the right way to approach them when we're in the studio. And when you take these songs to the studio, do you, um, how are they captured on tape? Do you play them together or is it, um, is it a process of, you know, you do, you lay down the bass and the drums and then you do the guitars and then you just start doing overdubs? Uh, typically, both of those bands, we track live and then we go back through and like, once we have like um, a suitable drum take for a song, we'll go back through and like relayer everything and like figure out the right sounds for every every part and whatnot. I know with the last relayer album, uh, I was meticulous with the guitars almost to a fault where I was like, I think each riff on this album needs to have the correct guitar sound. So like every single part I would recorded, I would like, okay, now I need to plug into like these eight amps and figure out which one is the right sound for this part. And now when I listen to that album, I'm like, I really overdid it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm still I, learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> uh, we're, we're all always learning. <laughs> um, we were talking to Thomas Yeager from Monolord uh, a few months back, and um, we were kind of talking about the their recording process, and they feel that there's this energy captured when they all kind of perform together, and mm -hmm. their songs tend to have this wave. And I, I would classify you guys in a very similar manner. There's a very distinct groove with your music. Do you feel that's something that is more traditionally captured uh, when you're all playing the way you uh, just described, or do you feel like when you're playing to a click track, that vibe is just immediately killed? Um, well, Pelican does most of our stuff to click tracks, and I feel like that can actually be useful for finding the groove in a way. If you if you have experience playing with a click track and you know like kind of like when to tune in and when to tune out with it, it does really um, you can get to a place with it where you you're still swinging and it still feels totally natural. Um, and then also, it also, our songs tend to have tempo shifts throughout them. So we'll work with engineers who are masters of tempo mapping. So they'll figure out like where the tempo shifts in a song and then they'll actually put a marker there and then like the click track will jump up in tempo or, or down or whatnot. So um, that stuff all flows and feels natural still uh, if we do it that way. Um, Relayer has let, I don't think we've done anything with click tracks. Um, but there's one part on this album that I think requires it because there's like a complicated loopy thing <laughs> that's going to require some, some, uh, attention to detail. Coming out of the pandemic now, what, what is your hope that you're looking to communicate with this record? Uh, for people we you mentioned you like uh experimenting with an audience playing things live but obviously we haven't really gotten to do that so how how are you trying to translate what you're used to doing into a record now i think what's in, well that's part of the bummer of the relayer record is that we were pretty much finished writing it right when the pandemic struck so we've been sitting on these songs waiting to record them for for a, well, yeah, well over a year now. And in fact, we had studio time booked in January and then there was that, uh, there was another spike in cases and we decided just not to do it. Um, Colin lives in Michigan. So we, while Steven and I have been able to continue practicing all year on a regular basis, we haven't been able to play with Colin pretty much at all. Um, he's come down like three or four times during the pandemic. So, I don't know that there's really a way to answer your question because these songs in a way don't have anything to do with the pandemic. They, they're, they like pre, uh, they pre, uh, I'm blanking on the word. Um, 
yeah they just they because they're sourced from before that it just it feels like uh i don't know what <laughs> i guess we're communicating some sort of pre-covid thing <laughs> i don't know I mean, it's a good energy, I think, coming out of the pandemic to, you know, bring bring back some some pre-pandemic energy to people. Um, how, how forward are you looking to, to playing this record live for people? Uh, I would love to, yeah. I mean, three, three of the songs we've played live before, and then the other two were just sort of in that getting finished stage when things closed down. I think actually one of them we were about to play because we had a show booked at Sleeping Village the first week of March. And I think we were going to debut the fourth out of five songs. Um, and then, yeah, we... <laughs> I would love to play this stuff in front of people, though. Yeah, I think it'd be really fun. I think that was uh, enjoyable about some of the Relayer shows is there was always a preview for something that was going to come uh, in the future. I think it was a previous show at Sleeping Village that I was at where uh delayer had, had come out and then you were playing some stuff from uh from your second record uh during that performance and that was exciting did people actually hear any of the material that is about to, that you're recording now at shows before the pandemic yeah we did a um well <laughs> we st on the tour for actual existence we were already playing one of the songs from this album and then by the time um we finished uh, tour the last tour dates we did were with we did a couple of dates with Torch we played Empty Bottle and then we played in Columbus at Ace of Cups, and we were playing three three fifths of the album on those dates. Um, Relayer has always been a band that just sort of like we start writing new stuff and then we just phase out the other stuff. I mean, when we went out on tour, our first album is essentially three songs, um, like two that are sort of in the seven minute range and one that's twenty three minutes. And we went out to tour that record and we played the 23 minute piece at one of the first song, uh, one of the first shows. And we're like, I don't know, I'm kind of over that song now. Do you guys just want to play like a bunch of new stuff? So like the tour for that record, we were playing 15 minutes of music from the album and then three new songs. Have those songs uh, changed at all uh, now that you're coming out of the, or now that you're recording it versus when they were kind of uh, conceptualized and you had booked the studio time in uh, January, 2020. We, we, we were booked for January of this year. We didn't, we weren't booked for last year, but um, yeah, definitely. The, the last piece on the album uh, is like a longer semi-improvised piece. And that one, especially like the more we play it, the more we start doing different things in it. And it's just, and that one I think is gonna continue to change after we record it. Um, Cause that's sort of the nature of the beast with that one. But even the older stuff too, like, I mean, we haven't played any of those songs in over a year now because there's no call for us to play old songs <laughs> since we're not warming up for a show or anything like that. Um, but those songs were beginning to evolve and change in, in certain ways too, and just getting more comfortable in their skin, just the way, I mean, I feel like that's just the nature of songs is like, uh, the more you play them, the more you, you understand and, uh, your feelings about them evolve and you change as a player because just playing a lot changes how you play music and how you approach it. So it's just natural for things to continue to change and shift. Um, and is this album going to, is this like an autumn release that you're looking at uh, for this album? Uh, it's looking like early 2022. And, uh, you know, uh, on the note of being able to play things and seeing them morph over time, how is, um, the pandemic affected your productivity in that regard uh sadly these same five relayer songs uh <laughs> that were done essentially done a year ago are the only music i've been working on um i do find it really difficult to stay productive and stay creative in the midst of all of this i think the the lack of stimulus just from being inside or the the lack of variety, I guess, just because like, I'm not stuck inside. I mean, I go for walks, walk around the neighborhood, I go to the grocery store, but it is sort of like, we're kind of stuck in a loop in a way. You know what I mean? It's just like a time loop that just keeps going and going and going. And every day is just so similar that it is hard to find 
things that are inspiring creatively. I think um, that's part of what is really missing for me is that lack that lack of stimulus. Um, so I'm really happy that things are starting to shift and and things are starting to at least in the states that the the COVID rates are starting to go back down because it gives me some hope that there's going to be new experiences and new stimulus to to kind of fuel creativity moving forward. And when you talk about things that uh, stimulate you, is it ideas with people, like having conversations with people, meeting new people? Are these kind of things that give you just spark ideas? Or is it more seeing, getting out in nature a little bit or getting out in the city and just experiencing those things? All of that. I mean, it's just, I think um, really everything in life can be inspiring in a creative way. And certainly like when I'm on hikes or something like that, like I'll start getting music ideas running through my head over and over again. Uh, and then it's just a matter of trying to capture that stuff. But conversations too, and like, I don't know, going to going to bars or like going to movies and just like, yeah, having conversations, getting out in different cities and seeing like the way different cities are laid out, just like everything can just be like inspiring in one way or another. It just like it opens to any kind of stimulation uh, of the senses kind of like opens different neural pathways in your mind. And that just like, I don't know, having a constant shift, I think is really important because um, it just keeps your mind nimble and keeps information flowing through it, you know? Are you now that things are sort of opening up, are you finding uh, some of that inspiration coming back? And what are some of those, if those things are, what are they? Uh, I still haven't really changed up my routine that much, to be quite honest. Uh, my wife and I have a restaurant reservation for June that feels like <laughs> as, as risky as of anything I've done as in the past year. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I would, I would just like to get out of town or something. Um, so we're going to start looking at summer vacation ideas and stuff like that. And I don't know, we'll take it from there. And uh, you and your wife also play in a band called Let's Pet. Is that, uh, is that correct? We did. Let's Pet is rather defunct at the moment. Um, but there has been some talk about trying to get music going again. Were, were you together uh, when the project was more active? Like, I guess that would be almost 10 years ago now, right? Um, I think you, you might be thinking of Teeth. Uh, teeth morphed into Let's Pet later. When did we make that Let's Pet? I guess that was about 10 years ago. I'm sorry. I'm, no, no, I'm <laughs> no, I'm confused personally. Sorry, that was probably like eight years ago. Uh, because I think there was a show at the Empty Bottle in like 2013 that I was at. Um, oh God, was it that long ago that we played shows? <laughs> sorry, I have to Google this because now, now it's messing with me. Yeah, because, no, that's right. Because Lisa was pregnant with... Damien when we recorded the album. Yeah, we recorded it in 2012. Good lord. Um, we did. <laughs> we so there's been some talk around the household about uh, new material. <laughs> Just about jamming. <laughs> we did like keep going after that album. It just nothing. Um, it was hard because like it's hard. We were able to have band practice after Damien would go to bed or whatever and like we had a baby monitor down here this is the room that we practiced in my basement office uh studio space but um yeah just jam with a baby monitor on but then like our base uh our guitar player dan runs that satan company upton's naturals and they their stuff really started taking off right after like right around that period and he had to do a lot of international travel and stuff like that and then similar situation for Billy, our guitar player. He does D Delicious Design League and they were getting super busy. And it was just like, even trying to find the one day a week that everybody, I mean, Lisa and I were always here or whatever, but like just finding the one day a week that like everything lined up was difficult. And then Billy had a kid and then, yeah, it just really slowed down from there. And you, I do see a drum kit and amps. And so mm -hmm. you're able to do some home, uh, home recording. Uh, is that something that you've, uh, you've done for a while, uh, and is that something that kind of comes up with uh, the relayer recordings or with uh, things coming up with um, 
when you're writing material for Pelican or other projects? Um, I've done the last two Pelican records. We did a bunch of demoing type stuff at home, not not with drums, like kind of like Larry would record. We would record a scratch track. He would record drums on like his phone or like with a, a friend out there in L.A. And then he'd send it back to us and we could construct demos on top of it. So there's been some of that. Uh, in terms of Relayer, all that is like played live in the space. We haven't really done any demoing for the new record or any of that stuff. Um, in terms of home recording stuff, I am not making nearly as much use of this stuff as I should. <laughs> like I said, this year has just been like kind of a dead end creatively. I am trying to do a long distance project with my friend John, uh, who does that uh, project High Orad. Um, and he's been way more on top of it than I have. So I need to play catch up. <laughs> Was uh, when when the brothers moved uh, to California or when there was the, the Pelican migration out West, uh, <laughs> so to speak. Um, was that sort of when you began to explore like recording and like writing music and doing things in this like digitized manner of like sharing things on Dropbox or like uh, you send it or whatever it was at that, at that <laughs> time of like sharing ideas basically. Uh, I think the first time we really messed with it, because they moved out before what we all come to need, which we continued to write as a pretty, uh, in a pretty standard way that Laurent and I would work on the guitar riffs here. Uh, and then like we had set up times that they, the brothers would fly out here or we would fly out to LA and then we would just work on the songs together. Um, it wasn't really until the EP after that, Ataraxia, Taraxis, that we got into like the file sharing and, and building demos at home and stuff like that. That that was one that like, it was a leftover song from what we all come to, I think one or two songs that we wrote right near the end of the writing process for what we all come to need, but they didn't feel ready yet by the time we went into the studio. And Larry just kept getting on us. He was like, you know, cause we had stopped touring and like, I think he was just trying to keep the ball moving for the band just to keep us active and like engaged in stuff. And like, we were all just sort of checked out and he would be like, guys, we got to record these two songs. We still have these two songs that we never recorded. Let's do something with these two songs. And then like one day he just went to the studio and recorded drums for the songs and then he sent them to us. So he was like, okay guys, it's in your court now. <laughs> oh shit. I guess, I guess we got to make a record. Do you find that, um, this new style of how, how you transfer files back and forth, do you feel like it's affected your writing in a positive way or do you feel like it's made things more complicated in some manner? I think the records that Pelican made uh, using that method were more meticulously arranged than the stuff prior. I think Forever Becoming and Nighttime Stories, there's like a very uh, detail-oriented approach to the way the... the um, the songs are arranged and like i think in the past i was kind of pretty freewheeling about my guitar playing it was like this is the riff and then like every time i would play the riff i'd play it like slightly differently or something like that and i think those songs are a lot tighter and a lot better because that there wasn't any way to not be that focused on it you know what i mean just because like we were living inside the songs in a recording environment for so long that it was impossible not to notice those details. Um, that said, I I don't, and I know Brian doesn't, and I don't think any of us <laughs> feel like that's a very fun way to write an album. And especially at this phase in my creative life, like the way I get inspired and the way I feel motivated to make music is when I'm actually in a room with other people playing I am not the type of person that can sit down and like write a series of riffs and then make a song out of it. I really, really, really feed off of the energy of other musicians being in the room with me. So that's not an ideal method <laughs> for, for writing in that way. So then has, has the distance kind of put a strain on the writing process for you guys as a whole, you think, or is it, is it, you know, more you feeling like, I need, I need everyone in a room to, to be more productive. Uh, I don't think it's put a strain on it. It's definitely put a strain on momentum 
or the momentum is very like uh, hindered considerably, especially during this pandemic. There's there was some talk of like trying to get something going, but there wasn't really a way to get things going that didn't involve that same some variation on that same process, which it's it's hard to get motivated about engaging with a process that you are already frustrated with or you can anticipate what the frustrations will be as you get going on it. Um, there's like a few songs that are kind of kicking around and like I've done some stuff with some of it, but like not as quickly as I, I should. And I don't know, it's hard hard to get it going really. But uh, Brian moved back to Chicago recently. So I think he and I are gonna start meeting up on a more regular basis and hopefully at least that manner of interaction will help spark ideas more quickly. What does the stuff that you're writing now for Pelican sound like? I would have to say it's too early in the process to make any sort of call on that. It sounds like guitar playing distorted, maybe. Okay. Um... <laughs> it, it sounds like uh, the Ramones needs neurosis, just the same as ever. Excellent. So I think you were talking a little bit about uh, kind of momentum and that recording and writing sort of in this uh, digitized manner um, is, is difficult for you. Um, and that being uh, together in the same room with people is kind of important for you um, was like kind of slowing down your touring and changing uh, how you were approaching the band, you know, like, I guess this would also be around 10 years ago, um, to focus more on smaller opportunities and, uh, like not doing really long tours. Is, was that also, do you think that that maybe slowed some of the writing down as well or changed how you kind of thought and, and where you put emphasis? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that there's no way for that not to slow things down because it just means that we are spending that much less time in a room together. And that especially like, I think one of the things that we found um, frustrating toward the end of the nighttime stories process is that we would base all of our rehearsal schedule around like when we would have shows and we would think that we would have time to work on stuff. We'd be like, we'll do three days of rehearsal and then we'll go on the road and like the first two days, like we'll really nail down the set and then we'll have a day to work on new stuff. And it just never worked out that way. It never did. And like, we would just keep kicking the can further down the road and like never dig in as much as we should on, on new songs. So there was like a lot of it. And yeah, I mean, we, we slowly worked our way through things and incorporating songs from nighttime stories into our sets as early as like three or four years before the record came out helped keep those songs alive and helped keep the the momentum going at some snail's pace but um i yeah i at this point have completely lost the question and i don't remember what i'm responding to <laughs> uh. like staying on the idea of kind of like touring and momentum and mm, yeah i i think like one of the one of the big sort of narratives that has come about over the last five years is that bands need to tour very regularly in order to sell things and to experience success. Uh, and obviously we can define set success in a lot of different ways, right? It's not just numeric sales, but success can also be, oh, do I wake up in the morning and feel happy about like the music that I'm creating and my relationships with the people that I'm in this band with? Um, it has like what your metric of success means like sort of changed uh changed over time i guess i don't really think too deeply about whether the band is successful um i mean i guess we're successful to me like i think there was a point in the band where i felt like we had achieved in terms of growing our audience, we had achieved what I what I pictured as the right level. And then we kept touring more and more. And I think it was like driven by a hunger to build it up to be a bigger band so that we could like make a more comfortable living off of it. And um, 
And I think that's kind of what broke us is that we were touring too much. And there was a, for us at least, there was a, a law of declining returns where it was like the more we toured, the smaller the audiences would get because people sort of took the band for granted at a certain point. Um, so I feel like in terms of what was right for that band, I think we made the right choice because now when we go out and tour, the room is packed and like we're playing back at that level where that I kind of initially conceived as like the right place for this band. I mean, we're always going to be a fairly esoteric concern. I mean, we play like aggressive instrumental music. There's not that, <laughs> not that big of an audience for that kind of thing. So I feel like the fact that we're able to go out and play for 200, 300, 400 people is like incredible. Um, and that makes me, that I guess, if I was thinking in terms of success, I guess that would that would be it. You know what I mean? Um, I wish that there was a way to balance it so that we could do more than we do. Because when I see the messages from fans like, why aren't you playing this city? Why aren't you playing that city? Like, I don't take that for granted. It's like, I, I do wish that we could make it to some further flung places, but it's not easy to do when you're looking at like, two weeks of the year that you're able to tour because of careers and, and other obligations. So I don't know. I, um, so I feel successful, but I feel like there's still things that we could do that would look different, but I'm not sure how to, how exactly to get there. Yeah. I, th I think that like balancing that push and pull is really challenging because especially with social media, you can really get, instant feedback from people and they can write you all these letters like hey come play like my basement in italy or play mm -hmm. like my uh play my roof in belgium or in russia and it's one of those things where it's like it's i hear you like easier said than done right. in in a lot of ways and so i think that a lot of bands it's like see that and then they think that there's tons of people like that same person um, in that city, but that may actually just be the person right. that that feels that way, right? <laughs> but but the uh, the thing is, is that the the narrative of like oh, is touring to be successful pushes that that thinking in some way, and um, I'm just kind of curious, like because you work with bands as well, like in your day job in publicity. And do you, uh, is that something that you see when you're working with uh, artists and like you're hearing what they're talking about in interviews and things like that? Is that, um, especially now with things opening up, is there going to be a lot of emphasis on touring? And is that still like a huge metric that artists view as like linked to building sales and success if your success is like numeric and less qualitative? Well, listen, I mean, there's like so many different ways to get your band to a, a bigger uh, platform or a bigger level or whatever. There's like so many different ways to level up. Like you see what's going on now with the emo scene and I'm, I'm not plugged into it at all, but I am uh, tangentially aware that there's like a huge upsurgence in, I think it's now fifth wave emo, if I'm not mistaken that's been transpiring specifically during the pandemic because all of these people have moved online as there's as kind of their gathering space. And so all these bands are able to put out music digitally on their own and then build a fan base uh, without ever playing shows. Um, that said, that's also not a single uh, path to success because that you can put music out on the internet and never discover your audience there. And it's a matter of like getting in front of people and playing music because once they're able to see it and experience it, um, that's kind of like for some music, that's that's the moment when it is fully realized. And that's where people will in, uh, engage with it in the most um, enthusiastic manner. And, and you can kind of build something off of that. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, and then there's other people that blow up off of radio. There's some people that blow off of, up off of TikTok uh which is obviously like a huge talking point in the industry this year so i don't i don't know there's not any single way to do it i definitely for me like seeing bands live is 
something I would like to go back to doing because that to me that's sort of like the end all be all of music is like the experience that happens in a room when there's an energy and an exchange of energy between a performer and their audience. Absolutely. And I think that part of the like touring, touring to the bone mentality is that the performers do play like playing live and that it makes it easier. I think for a lot of people to want to uh, buy into that is because touring is really enjoyable and I may just be speaking for myself, but I would probably enjoy touring, at least playing live that hour out of the 23 hours, you know, would be more enjoyable than recording a TikTok video and having your interaction be through, uh, through a screen. Yeah. But we're also, uh, of a certain generation, you know what I mean? And like, I, this is sort of like the, the paradigm that we came up in and that's sort of like our entire frame of understanding music is kind of based around that. And if you think about like, I think about this year specifically with my eight year old that, you know, they, they've shifted online to such an extent that he's done like sleepovers with his friends on FaceTime or whatever. And, uh, and they'll do the whole night. It's like they're they're hanging out. They're playing video games together. They, they they'll screen share and watch movies on YouTube. And it's like there's like this whole way of interacting online for them that like feels sort of alien to my own personal experience. But I don't think it's any better or worse. It's just different. And so I understand that there are people that came up with the internet in a really different way, like at a really different stage of its evolution than when we were coming up. And so I don't think there's anything like intrinsically like bad about, you know, having the way you experience music be like off of TikTok or something like that. It's like, it makes, um, and something that's interesting about like something like TikTok where you're making a video, you're, offering something creative into the exchange and artists are blowing up off of those videos too. So it's sort of like the audience is really giving something to the artist in a way too. You understand it, what I'm saying? Yeah, there is interaction that occurs uh, when you notice that a lot of people are viewing a video, right? Like mm -hmm. there's more than if you're getting, you know, 4,000, 5,000 views on something that's 14 seconds, like you sold out the Aragon Ballroom. Yeah. <laughs> like that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, and it's awesome that like somebody out there wanted not just to listen to your music, but to engage with it creatively and do something creative with it. I mean, we get that kind of thing too. Like we get emails and stuff from people that are like, I really love painting to your music. Or like, I'm in school and I've been doing all of my essay writing, listening to your music. And it's like, to me, that's like, there's there's no one better way of listening to anything than another but like to be involved in somebody else's creativity feels really affirming mm -hmm. and I, I mean i i would agree with you and i think that's the future of how we're going to be like people are going to be discovered and engaging with music is through these multiple channels of um i guess creativity because that's what TikTok is you know i think with the abundance of music that's available to people now it's it's much easier for people to consume something that that blows up in that regard and it is almost harder for bands to kind of be found who are just starting out in this day and age because you're you're it, it's it's going to be tough when COVID ends and everyone's wanting to play because that's going to be saturated just as much as the internet and yeah big time it's, it's going to be an interesting world uh, post-pandemic for new bands, and I'm just interested to see how it's kind of going to shake out. Yeah, I am as well. I, I'm fascinated by it. I mean, it's like, like, like Alexi said, it's like not just like my work as a musician, like that's my day job too, is like helping bands get their message out and, and grow. So it's like going to be really interesting to see how live becomes a component again. Has the pandemic uh, changed? I'm curious about like sort of the, the publicity side of things too. Uh, has the pandemic sort of shifted some of the narratives that the artists are putting out or how they're kind of communicating their story or how you help them communicate their stories? I don't think it has that much. I think the way 
people do things has changed so much. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether that carries over. Like the fact that like late night TV shows do like interviews on, on Zoom or Skype now, um, when they would never have con considered booking somebody if they couldn't be a studio guest before, you know what I mean? And like, I think it's really been really cool watching also like the, the proliferation of, um, of really interestingly produced live clips and live sessions, uh, whether they be things like uh, NPR Tiny Desk Concert or K KEXP or Late Night TV, um, or even just like people doing live streams on Bandcamp or Instagram. You know, I think like there's been such a an interesting investment in like building out that those ideas, and it'll be interesting to see whether people continue going on with that because that feels like it could really be a part of the dialogue now um, going forward now that people like have a firmer understanding of how to make content like that and share it. I think that it just gives a lot of opportunity for media to access new voices too. Mm -hmm. And I, I know for, uh, for podcasters, uh, you thinking beyond just like who you can, who can come into your studio is a massive thing because now you mm. just opened up the entire world basically. And so you can now more easily, uh, I mean, you always had this opportunity, but now it's, um, it's been endorsed by big media that it's okay to do things this way. Um, right. I think, I think it was really interesting watching like, this whole thing evolved from the first months of it where nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Um, and like we were booking people for NPR and NPR was still <laughs> figuring out how they were doing like morning edition interviews and stuff like that. And now it's like, everybody kind of knows the protocol and it's kind of like interesting to watch that whole new manner evolve. Um, oh yeah. And then the other thing I was thinking about is like how it, in the early days of my job, like, everything or not even just the early days i mean up until last year like everything was about like is when is there going to be a press trip when is the artist going to be in new york or la and we can set up in-person interview stuff and now it's like i have people who are like i'm going to be in new york what what can i do when i'm there I'm like i don't know because nobody does in-person <laughs> interviews anymore you know what i mean it's like we had a, a client who has had a huge song in the hot 100 last year and like it was a struggle to figure out how to fill up a press day in New York. Um, we did it, we managed to do it, but it's just not the same as it was, uh, yeah, a year ago even. How do your artists feel about that? Do, are some of them like, do they miss doing interviews in person or are they happy that they can be at home with a dress shirt on top and underwear below. <laughs> I think mostly the latter. I, I haven't really talked to anybody. I think there's some, there's some people that really like the photo shoots. Um, and those still happen to a certain degree. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's mostly beneficial that you don't have to like do the whole rigmarole and that you can do it from home and <laughs> be comfortable. What are some of the challenges that you feel the publicity world is facing as the media world changes? Is, is the publicity world changing with media? Um, I think the biggest shift that we've been observing lately is uh, there's still a, 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 um, an accepted way of doing things that involves like putting out advanced tracks before the album and then hoping that those take off or something like that. And the media has shifted considerably away from posting about new songs is, is the thing that I've noticed. So like in the old days, or I keep using the phrase old days. I don't know like why I'm talking about sh shit that happened last year. Like two years ago, you sent out a single and like, you know, 20 blogs write about it or something. And now it's like two or three write about it. And then you have to beg people to put it in their week, weekly roundup or something like that. And like the impact of like actual songs is not nearly as what it was years ago. And I think part of that is just that websites 
keep a careful eye on what gets clicked and what doesn't get clicked. And so it shifts, they shift their coverage around what they know will get coverage. Um, or what, I'm sorry, what will get engagement. And there's positives and negatives to that. Um, but ultimately, I think like they're, they were seeing that unless somebody's huge already, they're not going to get people clicking on their songs because people are discovering music more from playlists on streaming services and places like that and like kind of relying on the algorithm to a certain extent. So it's sort of like the, the name of the name of the game in publicity is more about trying to create uh, moments, like finding ways to make songs jump out that are not just the song itself. Like what else is interesting is going on in the artist's life that week that you can talk about or trying to figure out ways to like um, get people to engage with interviews and, and stuff like that. And like, like we were talking about the live footage uh, has become such a huge part of the paradigm as well. Um, so yeah, it, it, there are, there are struggles, but I feel like the media environment has always continued to evolve and shift, uh, especially, you know, in the social media age, especially it's just like, everything is so social driven now that you really need to have an idea, especially if you're doing like, an interview or a feature with somebody you need to figure out what their social game plan is too because the interview if you just post the interview on a website is anybody going to see it it's sort of like you need to figure out how you're going to drive traffic to it yeah i think it's uh, it is interesting that as a as a public as a publicist you have to do quite a bit to help uh the writers find the stories in a way so that what they are offering of this uh of this song is something that may be special or that connects to uh, some other things that are current mm -hmm. as well, right? And so um, there's an interesting component to uh, you becoming the storyteller, which is also sort of the journalist job. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But I think like, especially when you know a lot of journalists and you've known them for a long time, it's sort of like you have a sense of, who is going to understand the story, the narrative, and have the best means of communicating it. So it becomes like kind of like almost like a matchmaker thing where it's like you, you have a vision of who is really well geared towards telling a specific story. And it's just a matter of like flagging them down and being like, this is really going to resonate with you. And you are the right person to tell this story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I remember getting, uh, from, uh, like nuclear blast, for example, like years ago, I would get like a burned copy of an album before the promo came out that was like actually printed on. And came, it was like <laughs> some fucking CDR that I would get because like they wanted people that wrote for magazines to get it even further ahead than the other journalists, which uh, I appreciated that gesture. And that was fun, but that just like created a new leak date for the album basically yeah. uh which which wasn't always to uh to everyone's detriment but it was something i was thinking about recently um within not just sort of storytelling but things that like were encumbrances to releases that you don't see anymore like it doesn't matter when an album leaks in a way like it's just sort of a part of your publicity schedule or it doesn't matter because people aren't like using torrents anymore really yeah, i mean totally. is that something that is that something that you see in the world of publicity um yeah i mean biz3 works with some relatively large mainstream clients so some of those folks are like incredibly protective still and like it would be a big deal if their record leaked but also for all the reasons you stayed it's like it's so rare now uh, people just don't download music because streaming has become so prevalent. Um, I, I, the thing that I find so uh, that has changed so much is that people don't ask for hard copy promos anymore, which is great. Like, <laughs> well, how are you going to play it? Like, <laughs> I mean, if it's a record, I'll take it. Like, yeah, send me advanced vinyl. Like, I would love that. There's like two or three people that always ask for that too. <laughs> and what do you do like you send them a test press 
<laughs> no, they usually ask if people are asking for a record, it's like they wrote about it and then they're they're like, Can you can you send me a record? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'll see what I can do. That that's on the label though. That's you know. But if it's only like three promo copies you're sending out, you've saved so much money over what the a crazy amount of money that used to get spent on promos and shipping and packaging and all that stuff. And it's all a waste because that stuff ends up in a landfill anyway. So I'm really, I think it's really gratifying that fighters have finally moved on to streaming and, and downloadable promos and stuff like that. So, uh, Trevor, do you have any kind of uh, last words for the audience or anything uh, people should be looking out for? Uh, well, as we talked about, there's that chord album, Imperfect Authentic Cadence, coming on June 4th from Debacle. Uh, they actually launched pre-orders, and like, if you pre-order it now, you are like, he already has vinyl, so he'll ship it right out. Uh, they only press 150 of those, so I encourage people to check it out if they are interested in power ambient music. Um, and then I think when this episode comes out, Relayer will be in the studio recording our next album, um, and that will be out early next year. Um, yeah, I've got that music that I'm working on with John that has no name yet. Uh, hopefully that'll come out someday. We were supposed to, like, rush record it. With, like, the, the whole game plan was we were going to do, like the drone ambient version of guided by voices and we were just going to record everything slapdash and it would be done in a month and i think that started in january or something so i'm like way behind schedule um then i have a solo record that i recorded maybe two or three years ago that i haven't finished yet so there's a lot of stuff in the works and and theoretically pelican too there's theoretically pelican stuff coming at some point well, always a lot of uh, musical <laughs> output to look forward to and even more now that the world's opening up and hopefully you can uh, you can experience more of what's out in the world and uh, gain some inspiration. So, uh, Trevor, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.